See you now. 
Pray that you continue to bless this time we're spending together. In Jesus' magnified name. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. And the people of God said together, Amen. Good morning. We had a great interruption last week. Uh, I know you guys had a fun time with Lane, and Lane did a wonderful job. Uh, but Michelle and I got to be with our granddaughters. We have three of them live in Washington, D.C., a long ways off. And our oldest granddaughter was celebrating her fourth birthday. And we missed her birthday last year because of the pandemic, so we got to be there. And uh, I had a very strategic interruption in my life while I was there. Since she was turning four, she got some nail polish which was a real big deal for her. And so she decided that she would open up a nail salon. So she was painting everybody's nails in the house. And then I hear, Pappy? I've never had my nails painted in my entire life. But when you hear Pappy, there's just something about it. So I had blue on this hand and yellow on this hand. And it's almost off now. But we had a great time. And I'm thankful that Lane was able to continue leading us through this sermon series called The Great Interruption about the Gospel of John. And uh, as he was talking last week, you know, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles was coming to a close. And on that great festive day, 
He reminded us that all the religious leaders had was a PowerPoint of what water looked like. And Jesus called out from the other side with bottles of water beyond sight to say, come to me and I will give you living and abundant lasting water. Well, a lot of commentators will say that what we're about to consider today in John chapter 8 doesn't quite fit here. And if you look in your Bible and you see something about this not being in the oldest manuscripts or maybe the best manuscripts, I don't want you to, to doubt God's word. What we're seeing here is somewhat a, a, a controversial placement of this particular event in the life of Jesus. Some would say it doesn't fit there. Others would. And so it remains there with this little footnote to remind us. But this is an event that took place, and scholarship would say this is something that no doubt Jesus was a part of, this piece of history that reflects to us who Jesus Christ really is. We get to see him in action doing what every last one of us in this room want to experience. And that's the familiar story of Jesus in his encounter with a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to join me in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and it's kind of a tie-in. And again, that's what a little bit of the confusion is. Does it really fit right here? But it fits perfectly with what we're talking about. Because some commentators would say this kind of interrupts the flow of John's gospel. But that's what we've been talking about. Jesus does kind of interrupt the flow of our lives to get our attention. And it says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives while all of the other people went home. And Jesus was there, obviously praying as he so oftentimes did. And at dawn, the next day, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him as he sat down to teach. So you see Jesus is in the temple. He is sitting down, which was a posture of rabbis, which really wouldn't be a bad option. Wouldn't it be great if you guys stood and I sat while I taught? Uh, that's kind of what they did back then. And so it's a posture of teaching authoritatively, and he is sitting down, and while he's sitting there, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. There's kind of a double slight there. Jesus was not just a teacher. He was known as a rabbi. He was a prophet. And those that believed in him, remember last week, uh, Lane was talking about the, the four different groups and the people that really believed in him believed that he was the son of God, rabbi, messiah. But they say teacher. The teacher term there is kind of a derogatory term. It's kind of like you're one of these, you know, makeshift, itinerant teachers. This woman is caught in adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, teacher, what do you say? And they were using this question, a little commentary here, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who's without sin be the very first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman who was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, no one. 
that neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Let's pray together. God, as we read your word, we know that it is living and active, and we ask that that would become true in our lives today. We recognize that we can be the world's worst impediment to ourselves by trying to resist what you would say to us. So we pray that our hearts would be open, that we would be attuned to what your spirit might want to say to us individually and collectively. We need to have this experience individually where your spirit reminds us of truth from your word, what we need to do. We also need this collectively, Lord, to do it as a church body, to be reminded in unison of what your word says and how you're calling us as a church body to react, to respond to your word. And we know that you want to speak to us beyond the walls of this, this church, of how this truth should resonate through us even to the ends of the earth. So please bless this time with your presence. May your spirit resonate with truth in each of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you've heard the story there as recorded in John chapter 8. And as you hear that, two obvious questions emerge. The first one would be, how did this group of guys know that she was caught in the act of adultery? It's a very private matter. How were they privy to know that this was taking place? And then the second obvious question is, where is the guy? It kind of takes two for things like this to happen. Where's the guy? You go back to the Old Testament law, and it would say that both, both entities of the couple were culpable, and the sentence was the same. But you see, an answer to either one of these questions may have interrupted their attempt to trap Jesus. You see, the religious leaders, they were relentless in their attempts to destroy Jesus. And they would stoop to any level to accomplish that goal. So they set a trap. It kind of reminds us of that catch-22. If you're a reader of classical literature, catch-22 is a phrase that's become, became very common almost 50 years ago. And then, then also the, the, the situation that Jesus was in in Mark chapter 12. If you're reading through the Bible, you came upon that other trap that they set for him as you're reading through this last week. They came and they, they said, you know, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? And that was the one in which Jesus, you recall the story, said, show me a coin, and he said, you pay Caesar what's his, and you pay God what is his. And it was a similar situation where they thought they had Jesus trapped. And that's why they asked the question. They wanted him to take the bait. What do you say? Why was that a trick? Well, here's the reason. Jesus was very compassionate, very merciful. They'd experienced that. They'd witnessed that. They'd, they'd seen that. So they thought, okay, there's a sinner. We bring the sinner to him, and if he's merciful and doesn't apply the law, then he's going to have all the people against him. He's being disobedient to what Scripture tells us to do. Then on the other side of the coin, where they thought they had him trapped, if he goes the other way and says, okay, go ahead and stone her, then he would be going against Rome because you are not allowed to execute anybody without Roman authority. You go to the crucifixion, you remember? They had to go to Pilate. They had to get permission from him. They had to get authority from him to crucify Jesus. And so they're thinking either way, Jesus is toast on this. 
Either the people are going to rebel against him because he's being too light on sin, or the Romans are going to come against him because he is carrying out something that only they could do. So Jesus takes the bait. But we're going to see when he takes the bait, he actually resets the trap. What do you say? As they put him on what they think are the, the horns of a dilemma. And then Jesus comes back with this very interesting change of conversation. See, they're all focused on her sin, and, and Jesus shifts the conversation. He, he interrupts their evil intents. He takes the spotlight off of her sin, and he puts the spotlight on their sin. There, there's a term in the construction enterprise, in the industry, it's called spotlighting. And you've all probably been guilty of this. You, you see some particular flaw. Maybe you're having something remodeled at your house, some kind of reconstruction or brand new construction, and, and you see a little bit of flaw, and so you put a, a beam of light up there, and you say, this, this needs to be corrected. And you'll see in the fine print that you can't spotlight, because can't, any, any particular construction will reveal flaws through a spotlight. What they were doing is they were putting the spotlight on her sin. And it was real obvious what had taken place there. We don't really know exactly what had happened. But we do know that they were using this woman, just like either some man had used her, or maybe she had used someone else. Maybe she's a prostitute, and she was using this event for financial gain. But parenthetically, one thing this story does remind us of is whenever sex takes place outside of marriage, someone is getting used. And they were using her and taking the spotlight off of themselves onto her, and Jesus reversed that, and he put the spotlight right back on them where they had a clear view of their sin. Can you, you know, I think I'm guilty of this. We, we all can be guilty of this, of kind of sanitizing Biblical stories where we really lose the humanity, the, the emotion, the pathos of what's taking place there. Picture this. What's going on? This woman has obviously been involved in an impropriety. And Jesus is teaching in the temple courts with a crowd of people around him. And all of a sudden, they come rushing in this group of men accusing her, and all eyes are on the situation. Imagine how she felt. She thought what she was doing was very much in private, as we usually think of our sins being private. All of a sudden, it's brought out into the light, and everybody is looking at her. There could have even been a thought in her mind is, you know what, stoning doesn't sound so bad right now. And there she is standing in her disgrace, it's a tense moment because what the, uh, the religious leaders are saying, she deserves to die. But notice what Jesus does. He doodles. He, he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. Do you know what he wrote? I don't either. Nobody does. All kinds of speculation, but nobody knows what he was writing. But this tension is hanging in the air. Are we about to see an execution? What's Jesus going to say? 
Is he going to start a riot with the Romans coming in? How are the religious leaders going to respond? So tense. And Jesus goes down and he begins to doodle. Then they get really frustrated because they're demanding an answer. And the reason they're demanding an answer is because they know either way he answers, he's doomed. So then Jesus stands up and he disarms them. Notice how he, he disarms the situation here. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then it's silent. What does he do? He goes back to doodling on the ground. And while he is doodling there, we began to have the silence broken. Whenever someone was stoned, you didn't bring a, a small rock like you would try to skip across a pond. It was a very horrendous experience when you would have large rocks. And as Jesus is doodling in the ground, all of a sudden you hear a boom, It's one by one, these large rocks are being dropped. It tells us in here that it started with the, the older ones first. There's a, there is an advantage to being old and that you see life maybe a little bit clearer, not because you're smarter, but because you've had more experience at making mistakes. And as you look back over life, you recognize how sinful you are. I think that's why Paul would say towards the end of his life, he would say, I am the chief among sinners. And so one by one, the older ones realize we thought we had him, but he got us. He reset the trap on us. He turned the spotlight off of her sin onto our sin, and we got a clear view. And they recognized that they were not without sin. And so they dropped their stones. And finally, the, the younger ones, realizing what had happened, thought, well, I'm not a sinner, but I, I guess i got to go with them. When we're young, we don't see it as much as we get older. And then Jesus delivers those ten unforgettable words that have within them two inseparable gifts. John chapter 6, verse 11. Listen to these ten words. Ten words, and you say, well, they're not ten in mine. They're ten words in the original language in Greek. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, what's taking place here is Jesus is giving us two inseparable gifts. These are unforgettable words. In fact, these are some of the most popular words among Jesus, but they're too oftentimes separated. We love to hear that part that we're not condemned but we cannot separate the other gift of go and leave your life of sin. Now, you're a younger congregation. It didn't work too well in the, in the first uh, service because they're a little bit older, but how many of you have ever shopped at Ikea? Okay, a, f a few more. Well, you know, when you go to Ikea, and I love this, this joke that I heard this last week, that Ikea is the original escape house. If, you, if you've ever been there, I mean, you get your 10,000 steps just trying to get out of there. Well, we were up in, in Dallas uh, last month with our son, and we were, um, you know, working with him. He's trying to put together an office at home, so he wanted some bookshelves at Ikea. We went out there for the adventure. And by the way, when you're there, 
do not pass up the dark chocolate candy bars they have. They're only a buck. They're the, the Ikea's. Oh, man, they are so good. That, that came for free this morning. So here we were at Ikea buying bookshelves. And if you're not familiar with Ikea, it's this huge, enormous warehouse. And you go and you see exactly what you want. And you really would like to just take that because it's already put together and put it in your car. But you don't get that option. You have to go to the warehouse and you find the box or two or three or four, however many. You load them on your cart and you go and you check out. Well, we went and we found the box bookshelf. And we're getting two of them. We got boom, boom. We got them big, you know, that's obviously it. We load them up, take them home, and then Michelle starts working on them, and she's a, she's a trooper. We're work, Miles and I are working on other things, and so she's going to put the bookshelves together, and she assembled this incredibly good-looking silhouette of a bookshelf, and then she came and asked us, where are the shelves? Well, obviously in the box, right? Turns out that we got box number two of two boxes. We didn't get box number one, and so ultimately, we had to go back to Ikea and get box number one so that the bookshelf would actually have shelves in it. Had to get both boxes. Long story to say, Jesus is giving us the exact same thing. You can't get it right with just one box. Yes, it is an incredible gift that Jesus doesn't condemn us. Think about that. The gift of no condemnation. When you go back to that scenario and you see all of those people standing around that woman, ready to stone her, and Jesus says, he without sin, let that be the one who cast the first stone, and they all left. You know who the only qualified individual was to throw a stone? It was Jesus. He was the only one without sin, but... He didn't throw a stone, and he doesn't throw a stone today. God's gift to us through Christ is the fact that we are not condemned because of what he has done. John 3.16 tells us how we receive that condemnation, but in John 3.17, the following verse, it reminds us, Jesus saying, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but I came that the world through me might be saved. Never forget John 3.17 that follows John 3.16. So what did Jesus do? This gift of no condemnation. Here is this woman. Again, don't sanitize the story. Put yourself in that position. This woman, caught in the very act of adultery, dragged out into the public square, surrounded by people, humiliated and disgraced. And as she's standing there in her disgrace, Jesus takes her disgrace and covers it with his grace. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our disgrace is covered with his grace. What a wonderful gift. And we don't want to diminish that at all, but too many times I see people say that's kind of the end part of the story, and it's not. And we make that the end part of the Christian experience so that we're no longer condemned. We're freed of our sin, and we sing, and we celebrate that. But Jesus gave her the gift 
of redemptive change as well. Go now and leave your life of sin. Was her life of sin just the sexual sin? See, we're all sinners. Whether we've done anything like this or not, just as those older religious leaders came to realize, we're all sinners. All of us, none of us can say that we're without sin. And so Jesus says, he didn't try to figure out what her life of sin is. He knows. But he says, you need to go and leave your life of sin. One of the hardest problems for us to understand in life is the problem of the common denominator. The only common denominator to the failed relationships in our life or maybe the repeated job turnovers or the financial disasters or our repetitive tardiness, the only common denominator to those experiences is us. We want to fix them, but the Bible is replete with the challenge to let God fix us. And thus, the spotlight is turned back. Five centuries before Jesus even came onto the scene, Confucius said, no matter where you go, there you are. Now, I'm not trying to give Confucianism today. The Bible would follow up with something much more appropriate and to say you're called to die to yourself, to deny yourself, to not just do what comes natural to you, the Bible offers this incredible gift of redemptive change. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And Paul uses that same idea multiple times in his writings. He was writing to the church of Corinth, and they were a very, they were a moral bunch. They were a, they were a, they were a rugged bunch. And as he's writing to them, he says, he, he, he lists all these sins of things that, that happen, that you're not going to get into the kingdom of God if you're like this. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, when he finishes that list of sins, and he says, some of you were just like that. What does that say to us? Some of you were like that. You changed. You're different. God's done a redemptive work in your life. I just, it bothers me so much in our culture that the idea is you can't change. And God says, I love you just the way you are, but I love you too much to let you stay that way. And so just as he does to this woman, I don't condemn you. Go leave your life of sin. This gift of redemptive change. I, I think we struggle in the Christian life of believing that God's desired destination for our life is different than our desired destination. Probably not in opposite directions, but kind of like a fork in the road. You know that God's desired destination for my life is here and mine is, is kind of over here. If I go this way, there won't be much fun and fulfillment. But you see, here's the deal. Is God wants us to end up in a very similar place. Where do we want? We, we want to end up where it's, we have calm, we have peace, we have satisfaction and purpose and meaning in our life. And we oftentimes picture that as a place somewhere. We, had, we all had to laugh this last Wednesday in our, in our marriage class. We were watching the video talking about these couples that were really struggling. And this one couple is talking about, so we were, we were just having a real tough time with our, with our marriage. So we went and spent two weeks over in Hawaii. 
And we're all laughing. Well, man, that'll solve any marriage problem. I mean, we, we all have this, this place in our mind that once we get to that place or that stage or that situation, that, then that's the destination. But truthfully, it's not really a place. It's a situation is what we're dreaming of in which the stress will be gone. We'll have purpose. We'll have meaning, fulfillment. And Jesus wants us to end up in the same place. And so he says to this woman, if you don't leave this life of sin, you'll be right back here next week. But I want to give you all of that living water that's filled with abundance. So we come to the question today is, have you acted upon these two inseparable gifts, this gift of no condemnation, where God covers your disgrace with his grace? Have you completely embraced that? Not where you're still kind of carrying around some of your disgrace, because we all have it. You've heard me say so many times, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all stand on equal ground. Have you received that grace of no condemnation? Have you received the gift of redemptive change, allowing God's Spirit to come inside of you and change you and shape you into the image of Christ where you do find that preferred destination that you desire? I love what Paul would write in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But he also says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, poses the question to the Romans who are wrestling with this idea that Western culture wrestles with in the Western church. Do we just keep on sinning so God's grace abounds even more and more? Makes God's grace even better, right? If we sin more and more, and he says, may it never be. If that's our view, then we have distorted this whole idea of no condemnation that God has given. You know, when we release all of this to the Lord, we find ourselves where we really want to be. You may have seen the funeral of Prince Philip. It's such a change in dynamics that all of the prep going into the celebration of his 100th birthday in June and instead his funeral in, in April longest serving consort in British history. Made over 22,000 royal engagements. Prince Philip's whole life was changed in 1952 when Elizabeth's father died and she became the queen. He said, of that day, people used to come to me and ask me what to do. But in 1952, the whole thing changed very, very considerably. There was no precedent for his role. A biographer about him said that he became much more than just the second handshake in the receiving line. And the way that he succeeded, though flawed in many ways, the way that he succeeded was revealed by his private secretary, Michael Parker, in the 1970s, Parker was brought on as Philip's private secretary. And Parker said this of his boss, Prince Philip. He said, he told me the first day he offered me my job, that his job, Prince Philip's job, first, second, and last, was never to let her down. He saw his job as the queen's husband, to be first, second, and last, never 
let her down. Jesus will never let us down as we see through this story. But Jesus' admonition is, if you want to live life to all of its fullness, live so you never let me down, he says. Wouldn't that be great? How different the world would be if we live to never let our Lord down. I hope that you have received both of these gifts, but if you haven't, there is a very easy way. It's to recognize that God loves you and he's created you to have a relationship with him. God wants you to be in relationship with him, but we have a problem, and that is our sin, just as this woman had. Her sin was destroying her life. Sin destroys our life. And it destroys us from having a relationship with God were it not for Christ. But as John will write later, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thankfully, Jesus can make us right with God. And it starts by humbly repenting of our sins and surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to pray with me in just a moment to do that. And if you're already a Christian, you don't have to be like Prince Philip. I'm not saying follow his life, but maybe follow that thought. Maybe you just say, Lord, would you help me first, second, and last? Never let you down. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this picture that we have today of the way that you love us. Your grace manifested in such a powerful way, such an obvious way, that you came to remove all of the condemnation of our sin. But only you can do that. And if we don't allow you to remove all of the shame and the guilt, the power and the penalty of sin, we will face that for all of eternity. So Lord, if anyone this day in this room listening online, has never received Christ as their Lord and Savior. May this be the day that they say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sin and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, you gave us the example of denying ourselves and even dying to ourselves. And that's what's required of us as followers of you. You've called us in the absence of our condemnation to walk away from our life of sin, to be repentant, to be forever allowing you to change us into the very image of Christ. We pray that we would be fully surrendered to that task. Lord, as we come into this time of receiving these elements that remind us of what you've done, may these two gifts stand at the forefront. There is no condemnation. We have been the, given the gift of redemptive change. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that our deacons would now make their way to the front. And if you're unfamiliar with what is taking place here, it's called the, the Lord's Supper. Some would call it communion. And, and uh, tradition of our church, Baptist heritage, we believe that this is a memorial service in which we remember what Christ 
has done for us, that these elements reflect symbolically how Jesus Christ died to take away the sin and the shame of our guilt and that we receive these. So if you're a Christian and you've been baptized, you, you've, you've taken that first step to demonstrate that you're not ashamed of Christ by being baptized publicly. If you're a Christian and you've been baptized, you're living a repentant life, not walking deliberately in sin, we invite you to participate in this observance of the Lord's Supper. We're still in a pandemic as much as it feels in some spots that we're not. We can be thankful that we live in the United States as you see what's happening over in India and Brazil and other places around the world. And one of the lessons that we're learning even in the midst of this pandemic with masks is it's not about us. And we wear a mask more than anything for other people. And so we're gonna invite you to put on your mask to come to the front and receive one of the elements, and if you don't have one, out in the atrium, we have plenty of masks that you can uh, get one out there. As you come, you're gonna find that the elements are stacked in two cups. It's counterintuitive, you, you wanna pull real hard and it, they just kinda stick that way, but if you'll just gradually turn that top cup, it just comes out, and then just dump that wafer in your hand, and then put the cup, the juice, in the empty cup, and then it's much more uh, easily managed that way. So whenever you are ready, uh, with your mask. And if you don't have one, you can get one out there. Just make your way to the front, receive the elements, go back to your seat, and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper together.
One of the verses that is, uh, I think it runs parallel with what we've talked about. This verse has become important to me, just committing it to memory, but I want to read it to make sure I don't get it wrong. John 5, 24, Jesus speaking, I assure you, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. Get this phrase. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Because of what Jesus Christ has done by embracing his grace to cover our disgrace, we will never, ever be condemned for the sin. Maybe even the sin that is holding you back right now. There is no condemnation. We have already, all of us in this room, we haven't died yet. But the Bible tells us we've already skipped over death into eternal life because of Christ. What a great thought. I'd ask that our deacon would now lead us in our prayer for these elders. separated from us. Lord, we can't be separated from your love. Lord, we remember that uh, if you are for us, who can be against us? And Father, we remember the anticipation that we have when all of your children are called home to heaven, that all of your believers will be there with you, and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, that we will be there at the wedding feast and we will share in your glory and we'll be there with you for eternity. So, Lord, as we take the elements, we take the bread and the juice, Lord, we remember your sacrifice. We remember your love and we remember your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few chapters past 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul was saying, and we experience redemptive change through Christ. A few chapters later in verse 11, he's saying, here's how, here's why. This is the, the, the avenue for redemptive change comes to Christ as they're talking about the Lord's Supper and says, this is what Jesus said. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that our condemnation would be removed and we would be liberated to live a life separated from sin. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Love you all. Thank you for being a part of this worship experience. 
Again, if you're a guest, just text WMCBC guest to 94,000 on your phone. If you want someone to pray with you, someone to visit with you further about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, know that we'll be out in the atrium after the service. I'll be standing over at the cross for just a few minutes as we sing this final song. But if we can facilitate you in deepening your relationship with God, that's a desire for all of us. We want to help out any way that we can. So love you all. Let's stand together and let's worship.